What does the future of work look like for design professionals? We're going to dive into that question today with our guest, Graham Newman. He's a senior lecturer at Chiralagon's ComD School here in Bangkok. Graham, thanks for taking the time to come by the studio and talk to us. How are you, Dana? Very good. So uh, you work a lot with communication, communication design, and you work with a lot of design professionals. And we, we were talking before about the future of work, what that's going to look like specifically for these professionals in the design field coming out of school or training today, 10, 20, 30 years in the future. And I know we're going to put this in kind of a Thailand 4.0 context. Right. So give me your big picture to start it out. The first responsibility uh, from any um, undergraduate program is to, is to define the look and the feel of the graduate mm. and um, what we're looking for students that are global citizens. They understand where their role is within the existing design community and also the extension of design towards social innovation and how that can be used to frame social, cultural and economic problems moving forward. Uh, so in that sense, what we need to do is um, develop these areas of interest. The, the design industry traditionally is comes from an agency and service model. Uh, yeah. To an extent, that's kind of saturated anywhere in all mega cities. So what we're looking for is to actually get our students to develop their skills for more towards more wicked problems and, and how design as a phenomenon can, can be used to kind of leverage and, and, um, and uh, you know, help people. Solve bigger issues. Correct. So what are some of the ways that you're doing that? Well, I think firstly, it's again to look at the, the, the phenomenon of what we do at Comdi, and, and it's, it's an education. We, we're not here to deliver a training. This is a, a degree then you have to have an education and we prepare students to consider the concerns and the contexts and the concepts around wicked problems and there are many of them in uh, this part of the world yeah. and this is something that, that we feel it's, it's very important to, to do. And what's interesting is the current cohort, the, the Gen Zs, are in, in many ways much more consider social, economic, and cultural problems in a way that's uh, very refreshing. My generation, probably less so. We were more concerned about um, working for the man and, and chasing the bucks, but, but actually it's, it's really interesting to see this engagement with uh, young people. Yeah, I, I've seen that as well, especially with the, this younger generation, like you said, like the Gen Z, millennials, much more interested in solving issues than earning wealth, so to speak. Yeah, and in many ways, again, I think the, uh, the the kind of DNA of what we do is to look at less about problem solving and more about problem finding. Mm. The challenge is how do we do that? And I think it goes back to the epistemology, the, the how we know what we know as designers through reflection and criticality. And we, we try and hardwire um, the hand, the heart, and the head together. And it's that conversation you have between your your pencil and your and your brain and, and how you can actually look at solving these problems you know, ba based on, on methods that are inherently um, you know, founded on the Bauhaus and Ulm and the Royal College of Art and the, all of these places. So in that sense, the concept of making and doing is very important still. Mm, and, yeah. that, and that comes from a craft background. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I'm, I'm very big in the craft space uh, myself. My wife runs her own craft-based business. I, I have one on the side. My uh, partner here, uh, Woodrow, he's a, a big craft man as well. And you see that carry through, I think, a lot in 
Thai culture, Asian culture in general, but very specifically in Thai culture? I think very much so. I mean, certainly the um, there was a report recently from the Creative Economy Agency, CEA, which used to be TCDC. And um, they mentioned the importance of the craft industry in, in Thailand. And when you consider the, uh, the, the, the craft industry employs over 320,000 people in Thailand, it's, it's incredibly important. And also it's a signature part of Thailand's cultural legacy. And I think we should be looking at that and looking at how ways we can prepare um, the future growth of the craft industry. What are the drivers for um, digital infrastructure mm. to support the crafts? I think that's the big disconnect right now is the the side of digital economy, digital growth, all the tools that have become available over the past 20 years with these more traditional craft sort of industries and places. Uh, I, I had actually chatted not on the podcast but by email with a gentleman, Thai gentleman, who is essentially a digital marketing specialist, but he works with uh, knife makers in Northeast Thailand Right. who make traditional Thai knives, and he puts them on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, and he's done very well. I think he's he's probably done about six or seven million baht in sales since his first project. Right, yeah. I mean, I, th I think actually the future of the craft industry and, and the digital in infrastructure are interdependent. If, if we consider in order to grow this market, we're, we're going to need digital infrastructure. We're going to need more diversity in the crafts. We're mm. going to need more inclusivity. I think also digital education. Precisely, yeah. And and how do we disseminate that? Is it through online and blended learning? Mm. Um, is it through... Uh, distributed collaborative courses because ultimately you know cr craft is about making and doing yeah um, and it's about it's about the tacit learning of together as a group we also need to consider um, how do we regulate and how do we how do we uh, consider intellectual property mm. for craftsmen it's a big in general intellectual property is a big question here in Asia Absolutely, um, and I think also the the um, the regulation side of it. Um, how do you seed fund craft? Uh, how do you evaluate it? And this this all kind of is framed around the this the brand Thailand. If we look at the way Thai Air, for example, positions itself globally, mm -hmm. there is a craft base around you know the look and the feel of, of yeah, that, very that, true, yeah. of that experience, but a premium look and feel as well. Precisely, yeah. yeah. Is uh, recently I was up actually with Woody and Uban Rachatani, and we visited a a fabric maker, traditional Thai fabric maker, whose grandmother is like a historically uh, recognized master craftsperson of Thailand, and to see what they did with they have this huge traditional compound takes months and months to build one ream of fabric, but their expansion through digital, their you know social media presence, their digital video production skills had really expanded the the scope of the business of the craft industry for them specifically all the way into Europe. Absolutely. And I think this is something that you, that um, Europe is certainly looking at. If, if we consider this concept of the future of the factory mm. and uh, if, if there is a craft maker, um, how do you get your how do you get your products out and how do you customize those products? Um, well, you can do that now with rapid prototyping and customization and small orders. Um, and if we take that a step further, um, I, th I think the, um, the way digital infrastructure can help the crafts industry is, is by 
you know, potentially framing it as the third industrial revolution. Mm. We, 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 have, we have these smart technologies and, and small orders. So your, um, the company that you were talking about, for example, through digital leverage, they, they could, uh, you know, an inquiry could come in, they could rapid prototype something, yeah. um, get, to, get it to the customer, ship it locally uh, on a micro level. Um, I think they go hand in hand. Yeah, and I think also when I when I look at their business model, it really was more of a de- it was a design problem to get them to that. They're not really at scale because everything's still handmade, but their reach is at scale. Right. So it was a design problem about communicating to a new audience in different languages, how they do things, what's available, and actually being able to build that infrastructure while keeping a traditional craft business. I think that was interesting. Absolutely, and and I think there is a there is an economic value to that. There's mm-hmm. the the uh, kind of soft power of yeah. craft, um, and how it's not mass produced. It's very tactile. These things uh, enrich um, our homes and our lives. So yeah, I think Thailand also probably has the the best record globally with soft power as it relates to Thai food. The government yeah. has spent millions to expand the reach of Thai food globally since the 2000s the early 2000s. So, you know, Thailand has a record of success there just in a different space. Exactly. And there's no reason why that can't be replicated towards craft. And make no mistake that, you know, Vietnam is looking at that. And so is Cambodia and Laos and Myanmar and all yeah. of these other areas, these other uh, countries in, in ASEAN members. That the we Philippines, need, yeah. Right. We need to compete with. I was actually just at a, uh, a special demonstration here in Thailand of Filipino pina fabric uh, construction yes and they're bringing that global very much um the also the, the other big growth market in the philippines is of course gaming and and um uh, programming and coding yeah um they have very very rigorous um regulation reform and they're uh, very strong on uh, ip and intellectual property rights at the moment so we can we can look um inside uh, uh, asean members and actually share that knowledge i think that would be a real benefit Vietnam is actually very large as well on the graphic design and uh, CGI for for movie production. One of the Malaysian companies I was an advisor to for several years was outsourcing most of their outsourced CGI work to Vietnam. That's right. Because it was a fraction of the price of doing it in-house in Malaysia. That's right. And and you hope perhaps part of... Um, part of this uh, growth area will, would be included into um, the Eastern Economic Corridor, uh, mm. the, 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 the three pro- provinces of um, Chengkong, Sao, Chomburi, and Rayang. Um, there's, I think there's, um, I think there's 45 billion baht put aside to develop the um, economic. It's East, like over Eastern 20 corridor. years, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, you know, there's the, the infrastructure is there, uh, and in order for Thailand to remain competitive, mm. uh, not only uh, within ASEAN but also in Asia Pacific at large, it's, it's, it's very important these things happen. The challenge is how fast can it happen? You know, I, I like that we're talking about this today because a lot of times when we talk about the future of work, people gravitate towards big industry to tech to, you know, fintech, especially in Thailand, is very popular at the moment. And while those are, are very big parts of the solution, I think a lot of people sleep on the on the fact that without small-scale entrepreneurship and growth in these other smaller industries, the whole concept of Thailand 4.0 really falls apart. If it's only top-heavy right. with tech and media and all these things that they want to grow, 
there's no foundation for it and it just all crumbles. Right. And also if we consider the uh, BART value to the Treasury, the amount of expenditure and growth and labor for SMEs, that we can take craft, we can take food, all of these things are have been around for many years and they are part of the part of the rich history of Thailand and in many ways, you know, scaling up from what we have already rather mm. than parachuting in other creative areas of expertise. I think it's going to be um, simpler to get up and running with that. Um, if we consider the first S-curve wave of Thailand 4.0 is uh, future automotive, smart transport. We have the advent of uh, agriculture and biotechnology, and we have food processing. You know, all, all of these things exist at an SME level as, as a corporate level. In addition to that, there's the, the second wave, which I think is probably more interesting for uh, the design industry, um, looking at you know robotics, aviation and logistics, uh, biofuels and biochemical industries and how how can designers um, design researchers design educators and design practitioners um, take their skills and and build build that economy hmm. yeah th that's a good question and I, I want to link that back because you are an educator you come come coming to us from Chula where, where does the education piece fit in there with that s-curve well, I think it's really to to look at uh, innovation and take up, okay. um, and how 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 can we push, uh, how can we investigate a concern, and how can we investigate a context and come to a concept that um, has been evaluated through context and mm. concern, and how do we, how do we push innovation and how do we evaluate it. I don't think there's anything new here. This 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 goes goes back to reflective learning, um, and and the way that a you know the signature pedagogy of design is the design studio mm. through through working and discussing together. And there's nothing new here. This mm. this has been around since the days of um, uh, the Bauhaus. So how how big of a role do you think universities in Thailand are going to play in that educational piece? And how much? Uh, and how much do you think non-university players or non-traditional players are going to play in that sort of education, both on the the craft side and on that industry side? I think higher education has a very limited participation, to mm. be honest. And to criticise higher education here, it is still remains elitist. Yeah. Um, the perception of it is elitist. It takes our students you know up to two and a half hours to get into campus and educators are perennially being asked to do more for less mm -hmm. um, I think actually the the opportunity is for uh, more community outreach and for more skills-based training rather than the existing models of higher education mm. um, we, we can only do so much I think there's there's much more opportunities to do grassroots community um, uh, engagement uh, and give and give people the tools to uh, get a trade mm. and get a skill. Trades are something that we really don't see here in in Asia, in general. I mean, you're from England. I'm from the U.S. Where both of those are, are big trade nations. You know, plumbers, welders, all these people are trained for years, almost sometimes more than university educations, and make. A better living sometimes than university right. graduates. Yeah. Here, you see a guy welding on the side of the road with flip flops and sunglasses, or you know the same guy who does carpentry does electrical and plumbing, and there, there's really no standardization. Do you think that's one of the 
Do you think that's going to be one of the changes we see through this Thailand 4.0 growth? I think it does exist, Dana. Um, oh, okay. I, th- I think it, I think it's there, uh, but we take it for granted. Um, we look at the the incredible technical skills of you know making and doing with our hands mm. and, and coming back to craft, and we we see it in our students. We try and give them um, a a framework around um, a design philosophy that's not British, it's not American, mm. it's come from Germany and Central yep. Europe and the Netherlands. We're, we're constantly amazed by the ability to use hands and making and doing through materials and processes mm. and drawing. And the, the amount of work and the, the quality of craftsmanship, mm. I think, is inherent. Um, so what we need to do is to push these skills and reflect on the the skills that we already have in Thailand Mm. and just push that towards an externally facing export market or Mm. you know somehow bring that to life well I I wasn't saying that there was no skill here what I was more talking about the structure of trades here compared to the West I I feel like there's really a, a lack in trade structure right in this country well that probably goes back to the lack of vocational training um, yeah. as, as I said, there, there, is a, there is a limit to what higher education can do. Yeah. We, we are here to make sure our students get an education first and a training second. Mm. And we do that through experimentation and we do that through empathy and all of these tools um, that we have. But ultimately, skills and uh, to learn a trade, mm. um, I think, absolutely are paramount uh, to, to develop crafts. Mm. Absolutely. I would fully agree. So next steps, what do you say? Next steps, well, the, I think scaling up. Um, this is, this is a, a, re- a recurring problem either from, from, from SME uh, or upwards. And if we take uh, a boutique design studio, uh, it usually has up to about 12 people in it. Yeah. Um, and then the next step up, you need to change your HR, you need to change your financing, so everything changes. Most design studios are around 12 people, and then and you have to kind of pivot everything when you're moving up. You know what? My, just to interrupt you, but to kind of support your point there, my biggest company that I ever started, 12 people. The reason I didn't go beyond that was what you just said. Right. The, the overhead that comes with expansion above like that 10 to 12 mark, you could probably get away with 15 if you yeah. have good structure for teams. You start to get over that. All of a sudden, you need a full-time HR person. All of a right. sudden, you need a full-time accounting person. Yeah. Right? It, the the overhead on scale initially yes. is difficult. And I think, well, we need to have support through regulatory reform. Um, we need to have seed funding. Mm. And I believe you know, design and design thinking is not going to save the world on its own. It mm. needs a free market economic uh, model to work within. Yes. Um, so I think, I think you know, what's next is going to be a conversation, an ongoing conversation mm. to unpack how we actually go from, uh, you know, that 12 people up mm. to 24, 36, and not necessarily design studios in a traditional service model. But a design studio that's solving real-world issues. Precisely. That's what we want. And there, there are um, a number of companies um, you know, in Europe and North America that have done very well monetizing that, yeah. who will remain nameless. <laughs> um, but however, you know, this, this, uh, this concept of using design towards assisting service users and service providers in the context of wicked problems socially, economically, mm. um, and culturally, 
have been around for, for many, many years. So the, uh, the Royal Society of Arts in London has been around since 1754 doing exactly this. Mm. I was actually just at a, uh, an event run by a, uh, an RSA uh, grant recipient here right, in Bangkok. Yeah. 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 So the, they're not just operating in Europe, they're, they're globally. That's right, yeah. I mean, there's a number of fellows mm. uh, in Thailand. And, um, of course, the, pro the, the problem there is that uh, the actual fees to join the, the RSA are so much. And it's we, quite we, high, yeah. And we, we lobbied uh, to see if there could be a fee reduction for uh, ACM member countries. And, uh, unfortunately, they declined. <laughs> how, how nice of them. <laughs> it goes back a little bit to that elitist status, though, maybe, that, that mindset. I think so. Um, I mean, look, there's there's a lot to be done. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the very the very definition of what a, a designer and a design researcher actually do um, is still quite ambiguous at the moment. They are interdependent of each other. Mm. But how do we? The biggest challenge for me personally is how do we get design higher up the food chain? Yeah. How do we push it? Right. Because because normally when brief a design brief comes in, um, the decisions have been made already. And you can argue it's almost too late mm. to actually implement um, what you think will be a, a really valid proposition. So I'm, I'm keen to get the design conversation higher up the food chain at, at, at a more st strategic level. I think that's really where it belongs. And I mean, for me, I think design is a, I don't want to say design thinking, but a design mindset mm. should be sort of ubiquitous yes. in the business world, in the, the craft world, in every world just because there's so much value to it. I think so. And uh, and also the concept of design being a conversation in time and space, the conversation, the circularity of discussion you have with your hand and your pencil or with, with other peers is, is fundamentally different to you know the, the, the way that business administration is taught, for example. So also at the, at, at the same time, you know, is it right or wrong to parachute designers into large organizations and, mm. you know, and try and engage in creative disruption and things where the organization itself should actually consider the purpose of design? It's more of a cultural shift than a, an internal disruption, right? And yeah, that's what right. we really need to be looking for. So I want to start to wrap things up, but I want to get back, Graham, to one of the things that we talked about before we do, and that was seed funding for these these smaller organizations and how that does have to change, or at least funding in general. Do you have any ideas on what you think that should look like? Presumably, that there should be some degree of um, you know some tax incentive, looking at how the assets of the business depreciate, or somehow to actually seed fund projects um, towards scaling it up. Um, now, whether that exists or not, I don't know in no. Thailand. Um, if we look at um, certainly the European model, and I think Singapore to an extent, there, mm. there, there is funding available for initiatives to turn vapor into substance. Yeah. The lead times need to be considered as well. A, a lot of what I've seen here in Asia is that most of things that revolve around craft or design tend to be uh, grant-driven. Mm. And that, that's not always a sustainable model. And, well, I should say that not every person in that space has the ability to, or the experience to turn it into a sustainable, into something sustainable. So I, I like, um, I've looked a lot at the microfinance right. aspect of funding for small businesses I think that's interesting. I'm just not too sure on the 
on the mechanics of it and how it would work just yet like if it, in that space for like ongoing growth i think you're right um i mean particularly if we if we, if we take an example of investing uh either in a you know a, a, a risograph machine or a 3d printing machine mm. you know these things cost a lot of money there's import tax on them and you know overheads to consider mm. before you've actually started producing products anything yeah anything but that that said is there this concept of the virtual studio and kind of co-sharing or you know when machines have downtime other people can use these things mm. so that would be interesting I'd, I'd like to see that I, th I think you know particularly rapid prototyping 3d prototyping and the, the lights these are big investments and also very very valid technologies for most people in design or craft industry but talking about 3D printing, there's actually a, an RSA fellow here in uh, in Thailand who runs a, a filament company, uh, 3D filament made from recycled PET bottles. And he's created a whole circular economy model based on this recycled PET, purchasing it from like uh, independent trash pickers. And then also, the, I know in the 3D space, some friends of mine at the University of Malaya had that same issue about importing 3D machines taxes being too high import duties being too high they built their own 3d printers at the at their cafe that their yeah. design cafe yeah and now sell them throughout malaysia for about a third the cost of buying an imported one yeah i think that's a, a, a wonderful example of, of kind of disruptive innovation and they're at version three i believe last time i was down there they're at version three of their device which it, and it does amazing work very high resolution 3d prints if we just look at the local materials and local mm. products around us in thailand um i mean to, uh, a historical example uh, from japan would be there was a studio who um uh, produced uh, a famous chair for Isemeyeki, mm. uh, the, the the cabbage chair, and, oh, that, yeah. and that was using um, great chair, just just wasted uh, paper mm. for pleated textiles. Yeah. Um, now, now that you know these things sell for uh, lots of money, but not cheap. It, they're not cheap. But if we consider the concept of something like miyakes, mm. um, there's bamboo and there's um, banana leaf and all of these, uh, you know, in incredible resources that we have. That Renewable, even. Yeah. yeah, we could give we could give um, another life to. Mm. That's one of the things I really enjoyed about the pina fabric from the Philippines. It's made from pineapple leaves. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's a designer in uh, London, uh, a Mexican gentleman who's who's looking at. Um, the leaves of corn mm. in Mexico, and he's drying those and, and making uh, different products to, to sell. So it, these things do exist. There's a company in the Netherlands that's looking at how to um, use uh, Thai products, um, banana leaves, for, for example, and, and with, with a, a chemical to give that a property where you could perhaps use for eye patches or some kind of wearable garment. So mm. these things are happening, but they should happen closer to home. Yeah. No, fully agree. And I think that there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of advances to be made. I know a lot of work being done with hemp out of India. Right, and yes. Uh, they're growing a lot of hemp and doing quite, quite interesting things with hemp fabric. Yes. Yeah, it's quite nice. Yes. Well, Graham, I want to thank you for taking the time. Any last thoughts for us before we go? The challenge is how do we actually, you know, disseminate this information? And, and I think it comes back to, you know, leveraging digital technology through blended and online learning and distributed collaborative courses and, and get the message out there. It's inappropriate for businesses to come either to campuses or come into, you know, the mega cities that we have.
mm. um, to uh, learn these trades and skills. So I would like to see more um, the focus on, on learning and blended learning to, to scale this up for the country. Fantastic. Graham, thank you so much. I hope you're going to come back and see us again. You're very welcome. Awesome. Thank you, Graham.